This is a two-part episode, so if you haven't listened to part one, go back and listen to that first. If you have, I'm immensely proud of you. Yeah, I mean, like, until you hit, until they're losing World War II, <laughs> right, right, right. and then, uh, and then, and then some of the capitalists start to regret their devil's Owned. bargain. But up until, like, 1943, I mean, shit works out great for the capitalists. Right. They make a lot of money. Right. And it's like, the thing is, um, about weaponized Keynesianism mm-hmm. is, uh, I mean... It works. Yeah, yeah. You can spend a ton of money. And I was if, joking, Sean. Well, <laughs> well, look, the thing is, <laughs> I believe if you are in a uh, uh, recession or depression, a government spending program gives people jobs and puts money back in the economy. And it's like, yeah, if you're building tanks or uh, planes, I mean, that sucks because you're going to use them to kill people. But it's like it would be more productive to have them building bridges or roads or railways or whatever else. But at the end of the day, it does jumpstart the economy. Well, ultimately, what kind of sustained the Nazi economy uh, was the wars, because, you know, even the Keynesianism, you know, ran out of steam. So they had they essentially had to conquer in order to and, you know, get slaves and uh in order to like sustain their economy and you know exploit the uh resources of all these other countries like originally they were, they tried to be isolationist right, right. um economically like they uh, i think the nazis original idea was a completely self-sustaining germany right. and that didn't work Austria, at all yeah. Uh, yeah and and so uh I think most rhetoric that's bigoted in some one way or another starts with, okay, it's just us and nobody yeah. else. And then yeah. very quickly <laughs> they, they do inventory us. what they got. Yeah. And they're like, actually, you know what? Maybe we could get a couple of guys in here. <laughs> yeah, <bro. laughs> it's like they intentionally put themselves on an island alone and go, this is all I need. And very quickly are like, can we get like three or four people to do all the work? I really can't afford to right. just fucking try. All right, all right. We'll let the Polish be white. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Condition. White. My favorite Nazi attack on Hitler, which you'll sometimes see on uh, the internet, is that he killed too many white people. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Because they're like, look, we gotta, we gotta say Slavs are white now, and Hitler killed. Uh, he should have focused his energies elsewhere. Um, but yeah, like the, the most bashful <laughs> pro-Hitler guy. Listen, I like Hitler, but I mean, he killed too many white people. You know, <laughs> you know what? Hitler did make a few mistakes. I mean, listen, uh, yeah, the guy just made the, freeways. He had a good taste in art, but I mean, all the white people he killed, tone it just down. The, the kind of po- the kind of post that gets you ratioed on Gab. <laughs> 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 This is a call out for trying to cancel Hitler on Gab. I mean, don't get me wrong. He had impeccable style. He had a great speaking strategy. But come on, lay off the whites, guy. (laughs) So what was this about the potatoes? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So one of the um, funniest things about just the insanity of um, late Third Reich Germany is that... And there were a lot of... A lot of funny things yeah. <laughs> about late Third Reich Germany. So the Nazis became obsessed with mega weapons, uh, of course, towards the end of the war. Like and the one of these is the... Uh, yeah, the giant yeah, the potato V1s. gun? <laughs> well, the V2s, uh, made by American hero Werner von Braun, oh, yes. Um, yes. towards the end of the war, um, the earliest liquid rocket fuel that they could come up with was a mixture of... Um, pure oxygen and alcohol (laughs) and in order to get alcohol what they had to um 
ferment potatoes, basically make uh, vodka with 75% alcohol content. Uh-huh. And um, fam- that's crazy. Uh, I'm drinking rocket fuel right now. What <laughs> <laughs> um, one, one, one statistic about the V2 program was that more people died making it because it was like a, a slave labor. Um, just- <laughs> was that the funny part? That wasn't the funny part. Uh, more people died uh, making it than were killed by the actual rockets. But at the same Jesus time, Christ. in order to make the rocket fuel, uh, they had to ferment potatoes and they actually faced a massive food shortage because they were so obsessed oh, with wow. turning these potatoes into alcohol for their magic rockets. Mm-hmm. That, that And these rockets, of course, were also... Um, they wouldn't hit their targets because the they were um, drunk. The British realized, <laughs> yeah. Well, for one thing, they were made by slaves, and they were made very badly. Um, because you know, if you're a slave, you probably don't want to put too much effort into your rocket, just enough to not get killed. Um, that's, that's why not you me. I'm going to be the best slave you've ever fucking seen. <laughs> And then uh, the other thing was like the British had this disinformation campaign where if um, if a rocket landed in britain they would say that it hit a farm and if it just landed you know way off in a rural area they'd say it was a direct hit on london (laughs) and so then the germans completely miscalibrated their rockets because nice that's incredible well it is an interesting thing with um i guess hitler because of the experience of the first world war his view was that germany lost the first world war because the population turned against the government because of food shortages and shit, mm-hmm. and so, the Jews, yes, <laughs> uh, yes, and of course the stab and the, the, the stab in the right. back and all that. Right. But so that's why up until like after Stalingrad and even a while after that, they never really switched to a total war economy. Like there were, of course, there was rationing in Germany, but the actual German citizen up until like 43 was able to maintain a pretty decent standard of living because, you know, Hitler was very obsessed with like not allowing morale to um, disintegrate on the home front. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then uh, it, it and that's of course where you have Goebbels uh, giving the total war speech after Stalingrad to like, try to convince the Hitler and the rest of the government that like, yeah, the population's ready. They'll, they'll accept all this hardship and sacrifice so we can do a 100% war economy. Right, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and of course the reason Hitler was so popular early on is because most of the Nazis early campaigns were relatively bloodless first to take back the Rhineland. Right. And then, um, or at least for, in terms of, uh, German casualties, you know, right. and then Czechoslovakia and France yeah. were all, Fairly, um, I mean, not completely bloodless campaigns, but relatively. They were they were uh, speaking, muscular the diplomatic the trickery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think the reason Hitler was so popular early on was because after 1933, he had literally no critics. <laughs> <laughs> There's that. <laughs> so, but yeah, I yeah. mean, essentially, uh-huh. uh, yeah, Nate Silver. Um, saw his approval rating uh go through the roof (laughs) yeah speaking of hitler uh (laughs) well and it is another one other thing is you know with we talk about the popular base for fascism so Mm -hmm. uh hitler did very well with you know the petite bourgeoisie the small business owners and he kind of fucked them over because he really favored cartels and monopolies uh he Mm -hmm. did eliminate the trade union movement of course Mm -hmm. which you know cartels and monopolies love Mm -hmm. 
But he also, besides the petite bourgeoisie, his real popular base of support was the German farmers, who were absolutely devastated by, you know, post-war trade policies and these kinds of things. So they did, like, spend a significant amount of time, you know, subsidizing uh, German farmers and, and these sorts of things. And that's part of where blood and soil comes from, you know. The soil part of that is important. Mm -hmm where they're, like, trying to give, you know, small land holdings to all these German farmers and, you know, support the prices of their goods and these sorts of things. And they set up, like, a bunch of um, uh, kind of complicated economic schemes to keep foreign currency in the economy. And uh, uh, part of that comes from uh, their campaigns of repression against anyone who wants to leave, because, you know, unsurprisingly, when they come to power, a lot of wealthy Jewish people want to leave. So it's like, OK, give us all of your foreign currency right. and then you can get out. And so the government can uh, fill some holes in the uh, foreign currency budget by just expropriating from all enemies of the state. And similarly, like a lot of the um, SS and people who filled out the Einsatzgruppen were farmers who had actually had no uh, like let's say day-to-day -day interactions with Jews like the urban population did because, you know, most of Germany's Jewish population mm -hmm. was based in the cities. Mm -hmm. And so the Nazis never really drew from the cities for their leadership. It was really the farmers who were more susceptible to the propaganda and the scapegoating oh, yeah. um, who were then sent off to do the killing. Right. Mm -hmm. And also the majority of the Einsatzgruppen commanders had PhDs, so I definitely think people with PhDs should be in charge of the DSA. <laughs> so I always thought that uh, blood and soil was like a metaphor for the problems in Germany, like they were describing a stain on their underwear. <laughs> <laughs> well, they did after I've been there, man. <laughs> <laughs> so how about that Spain thing? Ryan, you took some notes on, on what was going yeah. on. Yeah, speaking of Nazi Germany, yeah. uh yeah, Franco supported Nazi Germany during the Spanish Civil War, mm. or sorry, uh, uh, during the during World War II, mm. um, in repayment for Nazi Germany supporting Franco during the Spanish Civil War. Right. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Hitler gave them like like some warplanes and some other equipment. I didn't write it down, of course, because uh, you know I'm always really good at preparing. But anyway, um, so Hitler expected Spain to repay them later on. Uh, for helping them during the Spanish Civil War, and they basically didn't do that. <laughs> they are the the fence sitting uh, fascists, uh -huh. so they decided not to get directly involved in the war. Um, but they did yeah, give them like say, surreptitious uh, uh, equipment and funding. What were you gonna say? Oh, I was just gonna say Franco was one of history's first fake friends. <laughs> yeah, <right>. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um. So, yeah, they, they basically tried to stay out of the war as much as possible. Um, uh, the Allies uh, were... I don't know how they were able to exert pressure on Italy exactly, but uh, they, they basically, like, um, put an embargo on them. I, I, I guess they were still trading with them for some reason. <laughs> so they put an embargo on them to uh, prevent them from... Uh, selling tungsten to Germany, which was really important to the Nazi war machine. Um, and uh, they even tried to, like, snipe sales of tungsten. So they would, you know, do, like, the eBay thing of, like, coming at the last minute and, like, oh, right. putting a really high bid yeah. in. Right, um, right. But basically, Spain was just secretly um, giving the Nazis tungsten. They, uh, they gave them 100 million 
Reichsmarks and credit, uh, which they officially considered a down payment on their Civil War debt uh, so that they could keep buying tungsten. <laughs> um, and yeah, yeah. so the U.S. started an oil embargo against Spain uh, to pressure them uh, to stop exporting tungsten, but they, they kept doing it in secret. <laughs> um, I think all through the war, basically. Um, and as for the Spanish economy itself, uh, they, they tried to do the autarky thing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they basically turned into what communism is supposed to be, according to fascists and conservatives, which is like, you know, they're isolated from everyone. Mm-hmm. They have food scarcity. Uh, the quality of life is terrible. They have massive inflation and they just have black markets everywhere. That's, that's what fascist Italy or fascist Spain was like. Um, <laughs> Black markets everywhere. Sign me up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it is interesting. Just according to Adam Tuze, I was just going to say, like, uh, black markets. I mean, he makes the argument that black markets in German-occupied territories are the reason a lot of people didn't starve to death there. Sure. Yeah, of course. Because, mm-hmm. of course, you know, Germany, like, uh, they had General Plan Ost or General Plan East, which was... They they said like hey so we're just like not gonna give the cities here any food and then like hundreds or tens of millions of people are gonna starve to death mm-hmm. and then they didn't give them any food but for some reason like of course there was starvation like in Leningrad and such mm-hmm. but in a lot of occupied cities even in Poland you know there there was starvation but it wasn't nearly as bad as the German planners thought because these black markets formed and people were able to get goods and are you it was saying people in the Warsaw ghetto were just big complainers what <laughs> uh, <laughs> is it is actually an interesting thing about world war ii is another way that farmers were able to do so well there is because of course the war starts and if you're in a city well you know you need food and the nazis are taking all of that right so if you happen to have a farm you you can suddenly barter uh with the city dwellers for all sorts of shit so like farmers you know throughout europe because they had food would suddenly have like expensive paintings in their house and you know really fancy carpets because city dwellers would go out to the farm and be like hey i'll give you this just give me some fucking food because i'm gonna starve to death without it supply and demand yeah yeah Texting your guy that you want to buy some lettuce, but you mean actual lettuce. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the worst. The worst part about war is when you have to hang out with your food dealer for one hour <laughs> just because you want to eat. Right. <laughs> like, why can't I just get this Where in a going, store? Man? Just got here. <laughs> you share this. I got to pretend to be friends with this guy. <laughs> Yo, man, I got this new spice. You're going to love it. <laughs> If you're just coming and going all the time, the Nazis are going to think that I'm dealing, man. (laughs) (laughs) Got to give them a hit of my loaf of bread before I get out of (laughs) here. Yeah, sure. I'll watch you play Mario Kart for a potato. Wait, so so if you're at your dealer's house and he gives you free shit, it's called smoking you out. So if you go to your farmer's house and he gives you free shit, is it called eating you out? (laughs) (laughs) He gives you some food and then he's like, wait, before you go, you got to eat this and listen to this new Wagner record, man. (laughs) Let me put it on the (laughs) hi-fi. Like, no, we're going to we're going to watch the Wizard of Oz. (laughs) Actually, you know something, uh, an interesting 
thing about Nazi Germany, just to jump back, because Sean mentioned Wagner, is mm. that Wagner became less popular in Germany because <laughs> Hitler pressed it so hard. Uh-huh. He would like force his officers to go to long uh, Wagnerian operas, <laughs> and then some of them would just sneak out, and he would demand that they come back in and yell at them. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, this is boomer shit. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so... During the war, yeah, basically Spain, as I said, just uh, secretly supported Germany, um, didn't really get involved. After the war, uh, they signed the Pact of Madrid, which allowed the U.S. to build a military base in their country, which I I think may have been the first one after Rammstein Air Force Base. Um, And they did that in exchange for about a billion dollars in aid. Mm -hmm. Uh, The decline of the self-sufficient fascist economy quickly took off when Spain joined the IMF. And started producing cars. Um, and this also involved Opus Dei technocrats replacing the old phalangist guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, so based on my intense two-hour research that I did while watching Bachelor in Paradise, I would say this was the end of the fascist control of the economy. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, the uh, Spanish fascist government made one fatal mistake when they didn't make their cars bomb-proof. (laughs) (laughs) They should have calibrated how much Basque separatist TNT they could withstand. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like... Watching out for Go ahead. The whole time I I was, you know, studying Spain, I I just couldn't help but think, like, how different the world would be if the left won the Civil War. So instead of like a bunch of isolationist phalangists supporting Hitler and Catholic technocrats building a bunch of cars, we could have had uh, the Spanish joining against the fascists in the war, which, you know, maybe would have ended the war with a lot less destruction with like, a, you know, Germany would have to fight, you know, another front. Yeah. Um, right. And and then the U.S. probably wouldn't have been able to swoop in and uh, get a bunch of influence in Europe with the Marshall Plan. Yeah. So we could have had fully automated luxury syndicalism by now. Yeah, right. I mean, if it wasn't, <laughs> yeah, but you wouldn't. If get, it wasn't for the uh, sort of st- Stalinist Marxist, yeah, Marxists, Marxists in, uh, in the Spanish <laughs> Civil War, you know, trying to take over the entire leftist side of the Civil War, more or less. You know, then uh, Stalin wouldn't have been forced awkwardly to uh, trade with uh, the the Nazis, right? <laughs> <laughs> Like if they hadn't tried, I mean, in a, in a more, again, real politic kind of way, like if they hadn't pushed it so hard in Spain and, tr- and just allowed the coalition to work as it was intended um, on their behalf, instead of trying to take over the leadership of it, I think that um, they would have actually ultimately gotten a successful communist government into Spain, um, probably. Well, yeah, yeah. Stalin, yeah. Stalin undermined the leftist revolution, or at least according to George Orwell, because right. as Orwell put it, you know, once... He tried to oh, a turn cop? it into... Nice sourcing. <laughs> Shut up, John. George Copwell? Uh, yeah. I didn't know we uh, were reading copaganda on this podcast. <laughs> um, because, uh, what was it? Because Stalin tried to take the revolution and turn it into a more liberal revolution instead of a more anarchist revolution, which it originally was in Catalonia, right. like, as Orwell put it, because after the revolution was lost, people had no reason to fight yeah. um, in the Civil War. My favorite shit is when um, tankies explain the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact, and they sound exactly like Trump supporters explaining how he's playing 12-dimensional <laughs> chess. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yo, no, Stalin had to send Hitler the oil because it was the grand plan. 
Trust the process. D-class is coming. The Nazis are going to jail. Well, the Nazis also tested out their like bombers and shit in the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, that yeah, always like, gets me when tankies are like, oh, yeah, Stalin had to sell a million tons of oil to the Nazis or else they wouldn't have been able to, you know, get enough funding or whatever. Like, what the fuck right, are you talking right. about? Especially <laughs> if you follow Adam Right, that was, the main, <laughs> that was the main resource limitation in Germany. And one thing we didn't yeah. talk about is, like, another intervention in the economy they did was for this autarky thing. They were trying all sorts of different ways of, like, turning coal, which Germany had a lot of, into oil or petrol, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. they just didn't have much much oil. Like, there were fields in Romania, but after Molotov-Ribbentrop, like, they got um, uh, oil from the Soviet Union, yep. and then that's part of why they tried to um, invade the Caucasus, which... Uh, even Britain, even yeah. Britain refused to sell them oil. <laughs> <laughs> like... Ugh. Uh, man. Yeah. Trust the plan. <laughs> yeah. The Marshall Follow plan. the oil. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so okay, so I'm going to I'm going to get into Japan and whether or not it fit because Japan had its own thing going as well. Um it was kind of on the other side of the uh, of the whole fascist uh kind of axis you know, you know, super group whatever the fuck uh from like Franco Spain because you know, Franco Spain was like arguably more uh formally fascist or fascistoid um and obviously much more european uh but um but they were you know the fake friends fascist supergroup damn nazis <laughs> yeah, right um but like fas uh you know franco's spain was was um also as we kind of went through like not really into getting into interventions and stuff they just wanted their own thing um and sort of stayed out of it except for the secret trade and stuff. Whereas Japan, you know, was really into expansionism, um, and, uh, and, and was very vocally nationalistic and so forth. Uh, but without having what seemed to be an explicit, especially sort of European style fascism. So I kind of wanted to get into this. Um, and I, I think the, Jury might still be out. I think there's just there's like a lot of like you know it's, it's not cleanly categorizable, but it, there's still like to me uh, a lot of of Imperial Japan um, was especially from the leftist view of the sort of the uh, you know fascists you know what they do versus what they say. Uh, there was a lot of, of of Imperial Japan that seemed to be fascist or fascist like. Um, so I'm just gonna blitz through these notes because yeah. so good. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, purely on the economic side in Japan, it is kind of interesting where today, uh, I mean, I'm, uh, uh, Steve, our co-host on the podcast, not here, but he's uh, a big proponent of modern monetary theory and uh, the idea that uh, the government uh, inflation is the only constriction on government spending policy. Mm -hmm. And Japan today and also in the lead up to World War II is uh, one of the best examples, real world examples you can take of that, because, you know, today they have double the um, uh, more than double the national debt and the deficit of the United States. Yet they have absolutely, you know, anybody who tries to short their bonds gets uh, wiped out. The trade is called the widow maker because there's there's no rising interest on giving the Japanese government money because they can make more of it. Yep. But I was going to say specifically... Yeah, we actually did a whole episode on Japanese government bonds and how they have negative yield rates, yet they still sell out constantly. Yeah. Right. 
And and so you actually see that um, again in the lead up to World War II, because what happened was Japan, um, I forget the exact reason, but they couldn't do the gold standard that all the other idiots were trying to, you know, uh, the UK uh-huh. and uh, originally United States before FDR. Mm-hmm. Um, but so Japan, they couldn't do that. So what they did was they would issue bonds and then they would have their central bank buy them. This is right in the middle of the Great Depression. Right. And if you if you look at uh, GDP growth throughout the Great Depression, you'll see massive collapses everywhere else. But you'll see Japan growing like 6%, 7% a year. So, I mean, it is just something where it's like, yeah, when there's an absence of demand, the government can just print money yep. and it'll work out just fine exactly. as long as, you know, there's uh, not resource scarcity. Yeah. Damn, it's almost like everything about the economy is made up and the government can just do whatever it wants. <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, because it's basically like they're like, uh, it's the equivalent of like, you know, oh, I, you know, my, my house got flooded time for some renovation you know they're not even fucking worried because it's like i own the fucking place and i have all the capital i need because i just i speak it into existence you know it's all a question of arrangements um so what's interesting about um what i'll call japanese fascism for the purposes of this episode and discussion is according to an essay that i found that i thought did a pretty good job of describing you know their their political economy and its moves um japan seemed to have gone under um, a fascist revolution in slow motion. Uh, the military acquired a monopoly of power through a mix of terrorist and state co-option methods as civilian bureaucratic credibility uh, collapsed. And they also had sort of like a, an intensification of like kind of like a Shinto nationalism such that they were trying to create like a new Japan um, after all this Meiji restoration shit uh you know in the introduction of capitalism and modern industry and everything um they were like we have to recreate the state and the culture and the nation and the sort of the new uh man in japan who is uh collectivized and is completely loyal to the emperor um and so they developed this this kind of uh, dictatorship uh Japanese elites between World War One and World War Two identifi- identified modernization and prosperity with uh, essentially military strength, which sounds a lot like basically you know Germany and Italy uh, in in the cases we just talked about. And so they they basically were like, I think imperialism is the way to go. You know, Europe's been doing it uh, in this particular way, um, and it's the best or you know most uh expedient way to uh build a nation as capitalists you know to to build up our industries etc etc so they didn't have like a revolutionary party per se you know the way that like german fascists and italian fascists built their little parties and and grew them through you know thuggery and all that sort of thing um they already had this kind of aristocratic thing in place, not, not that the others didn't, but they, you know, they kind of just worked with that and they had this emperor worship already. So they kind of had a lot of things in place already and they just beefed up the military, the imperialism. Um, they had an interesting idea that they'd been, that they developed in the early 20th century uh, that was a kind of um, uh, pan-Asianism, but with Japan at the top. So like mm-hmm. they thought of themselves, if just to use this, this analogy, 
loosely, right? Don't take it maybe too seriously. But they, they thought they kind of thought of themselves as like the white people of Asia in that sense of like supremacy and uh, you know paternalistic authority and shit. Um, but and then this is again this is the elites, uh, the, the 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 heads of state, the capitalists, and like all their little ideologues and shit. Um, and what was interesting is that they also had their tussles between left and right, um, where in the that's putting it lightly, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in the in the early 20th century, in like the 1900s, 19 teens, um, a bunch of Japanese anarchists were like, "Let's uh, you know smash the state, let's kill the fucking emperor, and uh, just prove to everybody that this shit is fake." Um, which was the th- just a little argy bargy they had there. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so classic kind of old school anarchist propaganda, the D just blowing people away to demonstrate the weakness of the institutions, which unfortunately leads to reaction as we found. And in Japan, it was no exception. Man, what, what happened to anarchists? Sorry. It's been, I said, what happened to anarchists? It's been like a hundred years since we had a good anarchist assassination. I know. But they were clipping everybody <laughs> they were, at the early 20th century. U.S. presidents. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's they lost their they lost their nerve after Sacco and Vanzetti were executed. Seems like it. It's true. Yeah. Uh, R.I.P. Yeah. Millennial assassins. <laughs> so there was these celebrity uh, trials and executions, basically, of these militant Japanese anarchists in 1910 to 1911, where they you know they tried to they tried to like off these you know the emperor the leaders. Um, they failed. Um, they were uh, hanged, as I recall. Um, and then it, the the reaction of the left was then kind of galvanized against the government for a little while. Uh, so some of the elites became radicalized. Um, and in the 20s, one of them tried to assassinate the, the crown prince, Hirohito, who would soon be, uh, you know, running the, the damn game. But... Um, Mm-hmm. He, he said it was actually in revenge for the death of one of these people who'd been executed. And then this guy, Daisuke, he was then convicted of high treason and hanged. But the imperial authorities were I like, think he pitches yeah. for the Red Sox now. <laughs> Sorry? Sorry. <laughs> oh. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry, I'm not trying to like steamroll through this. But uh, yeah, so, so basically the imperial authorities, they realized that like, okay, like, the leftists are not just an anomaly, right? Like they're not just like a small cell, like a, like a book club or something that with a gun between them, they're like a fucking force that we need to eradicate. Uh, right. So, uh, you know, this is the early twenties. Um, the communist party, the Japanese communist party had just started up. The anarchists were kind of, you know, milling around in the underground, figuring things out. Um, the weird thing, if I remember correctly, is that the Japanese Communist Party was actually the Sokdem one, and the Japanese Socialist Party was actually the Communist one. Yes, that was one of the weird things. Um, I don't really understand why that happened. I didn't read enough for this particular episode to understand what... I think it had to do with China, like their stances on China, uh, basically. That could make sense. Yeah, branding issues. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So let's see. Right. So then, so then because of all this, the government got really paranoid about just leftists generally, you know, and kind of, they showed their hand as far as, uh, what, uh, what was going to be permitted. And also essentially, uh, from a, from a kind of a leftist view of fascism, uh, I think this immediately qualifies them. 
they enacted the peace preservation law of 1925, which uh, this podcaster whose transcript I took these notes from. Um, so, you know, but like, uh, he said it was easily the harshest and most authoritarian law in Japanese history. I am a person who studied Japanese history quite a bit. And I think that this could be maybe one of them, but I mean, Oda Nobunaga <laughs> has got to be fucked with. Um, so like the Tokugawa did a lot of shit, uh, but it was, but, but we'll just say it was pretty bad. The law was used as an excuse. It was kind of like this, like uh, preemptive shit that Ryan and, and us were kind of talking about before. Um, what what about that law that says you get the death penalty if you complain about the end of Evangelion? <laughs> I think that's just a clause there. Yeah. I think we both agree with that one, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Ryan, you got a note in here. About- I mean, we get it if you if you <laughs> dislike the end of the series original run. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Yeah, so the the peace preservation law um, created uh, this organization called the TOKO, which right. uh, stands for something really long that I'm not going to try and pronounce or remember. And uh, so I have I had read a couple weeks ago this book by uh, Takiji Kobayashi that I've mentioned a few times a few times on the podcast called Kani Kosen. It's a Japanese proletarian novel. Uh, that's basically like a, a communist version of what it's like to work on a factory ship. So it's basically like it's hell for the whole book. And then they, uh, they decide to kill their boss and they're about to do it. And a Japanese warship comes and stops them. And then uh, a few weeks later, they overthrow him again and successfully, uh, you know, basically stage a revolution against the bosses in the, like on the ship. But anyway, uh, the, the author, Takiji Kobayashi uh, was actually tortured to death by the Toko, um, which it was basically the thought police. Yeah. Uh, so they were uh, they were established when a different anarchist attempted to assassinate Emperor Meiji, mm. and uh, their the peace preservation law made them extremely powerful. Mm. Um, it enabled them to just arrest people for anything that was considered disruptive to the order of the state. Uh, that makes um, sense. They were like they were just Japanese Gestapo, right? Right. Basically. Yeah. Yeah seems and uh, so the priest preservation law has this interesting like key uh couple of sentences um that basically defines again this basically automatically qualifies the 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 japanese imperial uh uh at least the apparatus as fascist um it's like worse than declaring antifa terrorist organization honestly (laughs) yeah yeah it says anyone who organizes a group for the purposes of changing the national polity at all or of denying the private property system, which is capitalism, hmm. or anyone who knowingly participates in said group shall be sentenced to penal servitude or imprisonment, not exceeding 10 years. Okay. But also, you know, slave camps are a real, real thing. Uh, real bad thing. Sounds pretty lenient to me. Yeah. <laughs> 10 years. I mean, that's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. An offense not actually carried out shall also be subject to punishment. Oh, but so it comes with dishonor. Police right there. Um, just yeah. like I was staring out the window and they're like, you were staring against capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> you were staring but then there's another section of the law that says they will switch you from subs to dubs. And that's, I think, <laughs> cruel and unusual. Yeah. And this was truly the cruelest clause of all. <laughs> uh, and then uh, anyone who consults with another person on matters 
relating to the implementation of these objectives described in clause one of the preceding article shall be sentenced to penal servitude or imprisonment not exceeding seven years. So it sounds to me like anyone who even questions the law itself or like mentions it is just fucked. Um, they get sentenced to farming uh, mats in Monster Hunter for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> so that sounds pretty fascist to me. Um, meanwhile, uh, the uh, industrial side, the economic side of uh, Imperial Japan was dominated by what they call Zaibots, or Zaibatsu, um, which is just these Japanese-style industrial conglomerates. And they had a kind of a, you know, a, a oligopoly, um, pretty strong oligopoly. Um, one of the political parties was regarded as just an extension of the Mitsui Zaibatsu, um, and they had strong connections to the Imperial Army. Um, the same, uh, no, excuse me, a different Zaibatsu was connected to the Mitsubishi group, as was the Navy. I don't know why, but I keep, every time you say Zaibatsu, I keep imagining like a little Moe mascot being like, Zaibatsu! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, (laughs) I can't get over it now either Um, (laughs) just a tiny cute Japanese fascist with large eyes Um, she has green hair even though fascists usually hate that kind of thing part of of Japanese fascism was they uh, put all the uh, small business uh, panty vending machine owners out of business (laughs) and they consolidated them into one Zaibatsu panty vending machine business only big panty they later had yeah. They later had to phase out the Zaibatsus because they were causing mass seizures. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of nosebleeds in the streets. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so you see some, you know, Mitsubishi obviously is a big familiar name and they were connected to the Navy. And um, by the start of, the, of World War II, the big four Zaibatsu, Mitsubishi, Sumitomo, Yasuda, and Mitsui, those four alone had direct control, direct control over more than 30% of mining chemical and metals in Japan or in Japan and its holdings, um, and almost 50% control of machinery and equipment, um, and uh, the market of machinery and equipment. And uh, a lot of control over commercial uh, merchant fleets and 70% of the stock exchange, which uh, also sounds like uh, fascism, especially when you consider its uh, friendliness with, you know, just like straight up just market. Um, The Zaibatsu were initially in the 20s and 30s viewed with suspicion by both the right and the left. Uh, But I think in this case, they're thinking of the right in probably aristocratic terms. So I wonder about that. Um, The Zaibatsus, as as you mentioned, um, were doing pretty well through the depression. And they, it says, prospered through currency speculation, um, low labor costs, big fucking surprise. And military procurement, also big fucking surprise and another point in favor of the fascist interpretation. Also, I love a lot of the names that they gave to shit in Japan at this time. There was a thing called the League of Blood incident in 1932. <laughs> where, Jesus. Yeah. I hate when that happens. Where there was like some, <laughs> some group assassinated the managing director of the Mitsui Zaibatsu. <laughs> <laughs> they just murdered this managing director. So then the Zaibatsu decided to like go like philanthropic and, and improve their PR and shit. Um, so there was a bit of public shareholding, but really not much. And they basically maintained this iron grip on, on all this shit. 
Then, of course, Japanese imperial expansion into the Asian mainland through the annexation and, and um, invasion of uh, Manchuria, which they called Manchukuo. Um, this allowed the Zaibatsu and a lot of new uh, Zaibatsu, called Shinko Zaibatsu, like Nissan, hmm, uh, they just basically surged into Manchuria. Uh, so it was a bit of a It's so great yeah. how during these stories, like any company that still exists, you're like, oh, corruption. Yeah. Like immediately, anytime a name comes up, that's a company that still exists. It is sort of funny how like capitalist contra- uh, companies will like say, trust it for over a hundred years. <laughs> right, right, right. And as <laughs> yeah. soon as you hear you that, that, it's like, you know, they were involved in war crimes <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and they're turning this into an advertising uh, element. <laughs> right. An advertising element to make you think they're better and more trustworthy. Yep. <laughs> We've been making the same dependable cars ever since they were South Korean slave laborers, but now we're making them with uh, Chinese slave laborers. I mean, we, they've gotten away with it for so long, I might as well be working. We, we still make them with the same Chinese slave labor we made them with a hundred years ago. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Another thing that was really interesting about Kani Kosen was... Um, they kept talking. I mean, the whole uh, story takes place in Kamchatka, which is the northeasternmost territory of Russia. And uh, so they they take this fishing boat up into the waters of Kamchatka, and they're basically like in Russian territory, but they're trying to you know be uh, stealthy about it, and they're they're fishing their waters. And there's like this really strong current of economic nationalism where they're supposed to care about working because it's for the country and the emperor and stuff like that so i mean that was during the 20s so even before a lot of this stuff was really getting into high gear there was like a strong current of economic nationalism in japan yeah so one thing that i just want to throw out there for people who aren't familiar with how japan essentially uh, got into um the you know imperialism in asia game um back in the let's see i think it was the 20s sometime in the 20s they um there was a false flag operation called the mukden incident where part of the japanese military incident (laughs) part part of the japanese military um went and detonated some explosives near a railway line owned by a japanese rail company in mukden manchuria and this event gave imperial japan the excuse to invade manchuria in 1931 so there was like um there was like, you know, they, they had property, you know, industrial property there. The military decided to just, you know, do them all a favor and blame it on, I think, the anarchists. Big fucking surprise there, too. And then they said, oh, well. We do love bombing stuff. Right. Yeah. And and, uh, and so then they were like, OK, we're well, I guess Manchuria has to belong to us now. Obviously, this is the only possible way forward. So they invaded in 1931. And then. That invasion enabled Japanese corporations to directly exploit the labor and natural resources of Manchuria, um, leading to, you know, huge gains. So uh, Nissan, uh, my little case study here, they basically moved into occupied Manchuria uh, during or after 1937. They joined what what was called the Manchurian Industrial Development Company. um, And the chairman, Yoshisuke Aikawa, Basically, he received bank loans from American steel industrialists to, quote unquote, support the Manchukuo economy, i.e. the uh, Japanese exploitation of Manchuria. 
He was then later arrested by the Americans after the war and imprisoned for uh, nearly two years as a class A war crime suspect. Uh, when he was freed, the Nissan Zaibatsu had been dissolved. So I guess the conglomerate had been dissolved. Um, I expect the you know, Nissan company came around because it, obviously it's still here. Um, then I found an article in The Diplomat, and I referred to The Diplomat a couple, a couple times, but it's kind of like a fairly informative uh, mainstream uh, magazine about like politics in, in Asia today. Um, primarily like East and Southeast Asia, I want to say. Um, but uh, took till took till 2015 for the Mitsubishi company to issue an, issue an apology for using prisoner of war slave labor at its plants during that period. Uh, 12,000 American POWs were forced to labor in Japan at mining sites and industrial plants, and around 10% of them died. So 1,200 uh, roughly. And this is, of course, not to mention all of the Asians, you know, uh, from from Asia, you know the Chinese, Vietnamese, Koreans, um, Indonesians, Filipinos, etc., who were forced to perform various kinds of work, including sex work, for the beneficiaries of Japanese Empire. Um, you know the, the famous comfort women. Yeah, mm -hmm. it took them seventy years to figure out they can just let private equity do this, <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> just fucking bankrupt the automakers and uh, destroy union jobs, and then. Uh, there is actually like a doc on uh, Netflix, and this is a common story, where various manufacturing industries in the United States, of course, you know, have been destroyed through uh, uh, the China into the WTO, private equity, NAFTA, all this shit. So these various manufacturing things were union jobs and they go bankrupt, but then say Chinese or Japanese or whoever comes in and buys them up and reopens it and suddenly all those jobs are back, but they're not union anymore. Right. So, you know, it's like you can pay people much less, you can abuse them much more. And so that's just kind of like a structural change that has taken place, especially in the Midwest of the American economy. Yep. yep. Yeah, and it's kind of our current uh, one of our current duties, really, to uh, to rebuild, um, or or even make something new, whatever we can do to uh, to to regain ground, um, whether it's unions well, or something. I mean, it is interesting, like just kind of listening to to what you said here. And um, uh, sorry if you have more stuff on Japan, sure, but uh, I do just kind of think about. You know, like, as far as my conclusions or my takeaway, mm -hmm. it's like, what does fascism look like? What would it look like in the United States? Mm -hmm. And what we've kind of gone through here is, you know, in these three uh, major cases, yeah. you see the same thing again and again, uh, which is we talk about <laughs> four major <laughs> cases, excuse me. Uh <laughs> You see the same thing again and again, which is these consolidations of industry into major corporate monopolies or cartels. Yep. Well, we are we already fucking have that yep. in the United States. Yep. Like, there's no small businesses anymore. I mean, they're very few and far between. Right. Uh, the economy, or like the vast majority of it, is con controlled by major cartels or monopolies. Yep. So you're already there in the United States. What's the other thing you see? you see the suppression of trade union activity. Uh -huh. Well, it just so happens that in the United States, they didn't even need, I mean, they didn't need state violence. They used economic violence to do that. The, the government stopped enforcing uh, New Deal labor legislation and, uh, you know, exposed them to all sorts of uh, foreign trade deals and outsourcing. So you had this suppression of trade union activity in the United States, where at peak we were 33, 35 percent private sector unionization down to like 6 percent today. 
So you have that already, and then it's like, okay, what's the other part we went through? Appeals to patriotic nationalism. Well, yeah. where the fuck do you see those in the United <laughs> States? Uh, worship of the military, et cetera, et cetera. Uh-huh. So Who it's cares? Like, Pick up a football. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just, I mean, it's interesting to me where, like, we're talking about, you know, like, what defines fascism or what does it look like? And you do see so many of those elements already in the United States, oh, yeah. uh, which is why I think we talked about inverted totalitarianism earlier. Uh-huh. But I think the one difference that you see in these cases that we've all gone over is that in each of these cases, fascism rose up because there was a left. Yeah. There yes, was exactly. a social democrat there was a social democrat or a communist uh, left that was a serious threat yep. to the order of power. Yep. So I and think that's why we need to lean into conservatism. Cause you know, if we take a leftist stance, we're just going to speed up the, the process <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. into fascism. Yeah. Yeah. So like, that's <laughs> why I joined the NRA. Right. Yeah. And, and so that's like, you know, just something where, like, today in Congress, you have, what, two DSA members? So, if the Congress is, like, 30 or 40% DSA members, yeah. like, you will yeah. see what violent—you will see not inverted totalitarianism. You will at least see an actual totalitarian movement. And, you know, as for what that'll look like, I mean, I think some version of Tucker Carlson uh, populist nationalism yeah. will be it. Yeah. Where Tucker Carlson talks about private equity, he makes these appeals, uh, you know, break up Google or Facebook or whatever. But at the end of the day, he's he's a capitalist and that's what he's going to do or whatever proto-fascist movement will take the rhetoric of the left and... uh, and use it to protect and defend capitalism. We should also make a distinction between totalitarianism and fascism, because I'd, I'd say America hasn't quite reached the level of fascism, but it's definitely totalitarianism, or like in in the way uh, that you know there there is kind of this gospel of um, the American, um, I guess I, I don't know what word I would use, but just like uh, the American dream, or just the the wholesale like giving oneself over to the idea of america that permeates our culture and has at least since 9-11 if you fail it's because you didn't work hard enough you got to grind 90 hours a week you know well it's also this is the greatest country in the world right you know and you know even obama says mm, shit like it's like american exceptional uh Mm -hmm. capitalist realism right like not only is capitalism the only option in its various permutations but at the top of it is the exceptional America, which is the capitalist, you know, wet nightmare, if you will. Yeah. I hate when my nightmares are wet. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I mean, I just want to, I just want to like let Japan off the hook a little because in 2013, Mitsubishi launched the cute truck project uh, to, to let women know that it was okay to be into trucks um, and I, I, I included a little detail about these cute trucks that uh, the uh, slave labor using Mitsubishi company uh, produced uh, in the last few uh, years, um, just to show us that, you know, it's all worth it in the end. Did they come with an Ava? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think they were trucking around? <laughs> I was going to say... The real the real tragedy of, of Japanese fascism was there were so many uh, mom and pop uh, doctors who were doing horrific experiments on Koreans who were consolidated into the Unit Seven Three One Zaibatsu. 
God. <laughs> yeah, what, what are we going to do about their wages? <laughs> How are we going to compensate <laughs> these these small doctors? <laughs> you know, I was looking up why uh, Mitsubishi apologized, and uh, the reason was because it was U.S. POWs as forced labor in World War II. Yeah. I bet that if it wasn't, uh, you know, people from the U.S., they wouldn't have apologized. Yeah, no, they... Uh the history with comfort women in Korea and um, uh, China is always still a subject of Japanese nationalists today. Yeah, you know, if uh, <laughs> probably the people who carried that out are uh, honored in a shrine regularly visited by the Japanese <laughs> prime minister. Uh, yep, been there actually. It was uh, it was pretty creepy. Uh, yeah, looks the, pretty. The, yeah. You know you you know you can. V- you can visit in Italy on like a dark tourism is a website. I think that's the name of it. Yeah. Oh can, yeah. You can visit uh, Mussolini's mausoleum. Really? Yeah. Well, Mussolini. It's like a the little mausoleum. Out of the right. Yeah. How can you not? <laughs> <that happen>? yeah. <laughs> the reviews are good, but apparently for some reason it gets a lot of fascist tourists. <laughs> <laughs> so you do have to be aware of that. So, so if you were just to point and spray, you might get lucky. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, if we do that, then they might start attacking Marx's grave. So, yeah. I don't know. Well, <laughs> you can't kill Marx twice. They couldn't even do it once. But yeah, they, they have Franco's grave is there too. You know, uh, in Spain, um, you got Mussolini. You've got Yasukuni's shrine in um, in fucking Japan, which actually when I was there, there was yeah, that's still a big thing with nationalists there. Yeah, I actually watched the nationalists write take place in front of. Well, me. you yeah. know, yeah. when Andy and I were in college, we went to Berlin, and uh, for some reason, there's really no plaque telling you where Hitler's bunker is. <laughs> <laughs> there's yeah. apparently one sign that we missed, but it's just apartment buildings now. But uh, you'd think they'd have some sort of commemoration. I'm not sure why. Gentrification yeah. ruins everything. <laughs> That land is, it's, they want it condos there now, I guess. (laughs) Fucking capitalism atomizes everything, Mm -hmm. and you can't even have monuments to historical leaders anymore. (laughs) I read that as Yeah, it really sucks that gentrification displaces the original inhabitants and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Have you seen the the German sort of dark comedy, um, Guess Who's Back? Oh, yeah. It's such a good... Yeah, I... I, I... (laughs) Where he, yeah, Hitler just shows up in the modern day and everyone thinks he's a comedian. Yeah, yeah. it's incredible, actually. Isn't that Louis C.K.? Wait, <laughs> is that about Eminem? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, a movie about a uh, comedian who does anti-Semitism and everybody thinks he's joking is a little too close to home for me, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, um, I guess wrapping up, I, I just had some quotes in the notes. Um, I think this is, these are quotes. Speaking of rapping. Notes, quotes. Hey. <laughs> um, these are actually quotes about fascism from people who fought and or knew actual fascists uh, up close and personal. Uh, mm-hmm. I would say I mean, these are all pretty good describing different aspects of it. Um, but I, I'm just going to do the Sinclair Lewis one because, you know, and, and uh, listeners can, can, can look up the notes and, and see the other ones, you know. But you've got um, Deruti here, of course. You've got Sinclair Lewis, who's this, you know, socialist novelist. You've got uh, Hannah Arendt, um, 
the, the, the famous, you know, Hannah, um, Henry Wallace, the, uh, the VP to FDR, who was like, yeah, he, he wasn't great, but he had an interesting quote here. Um, but uh, Sinclair Lewis, I, I listened to the audiobook of It Can't Happen Here, and I felt like it was a really good kind of uh, alternate present for, for, for that era of like, what if the U.S. also went fascist while all these other, you know, countries were going fascist or, or fascist light at the time. Um, and so this is from this is from the text of the book. But he saw too the, the character saw too that in America, the struggle was befogged by the fact that the worst fascists were they who disowned the word fascism and preached enslavement to capitalism under the style of constitutional and traditional Native American liberty. Um, native in this case is in like nativism or kind of like, you know, blood and soil Americans, you know, American exceptionalists. Um, I think this is really what we're facing here these days in terms of the ideological struggle and battle, um, especially of course uh, in the form of shit posting. <laughs> I don't know. You guys got any, uh, any more thoughts on, on these um, or anything else you wanted to add about what we kind of went over? Uh, yeah. W w one thing, uh, real quick, uh, relating to modern day, um, what's his fuck, uh, uh Gavin McGinnis. Yeah. Uh, he, in one of the, uh, incidents where the proud boys, uh, beat the shit out of people on the street, right. uh, came out of a car, uh, holding up a, uh, I mean, I, it was probably for him a katana, but, uh, you know, he was, trying to harken back to the assassination of Inejiro Asanuma, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, who was the leader of the Japanese Socialist Party, yeah. uh, who was assassinated by a Japanese fascist in 1960 yeah. uh, by, by a traditional Japanese sword. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, you can still watch the video of that on YouTube. He's giving a speech and the student plunges the sword into him. Jesus. Um, yeah, it's fucking wild. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that's like the thing is like another thing we, we didn't go through. Um, I think, uh, I mean, Matt Crispin quotes some other academic I'm forgetting the name of, but mm -hmm. he says fascism can be um, uh, defined as the violent suppression of the left amidst popular enthusiasm. So mm -hmm. if you look at, you know, 4chan or, or whatever other uh, f online fascist community, mm -hmm. you'll see, uh, like you were saying, celebration mm -hmm. of the, the murder in Japan in 1960, and you yep. know you'll see like anonymous Twitter accounts who have that student who killed him as their AVI. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you'll see, uh, and then the other thing is, of course, the helicopter meme. Right. You know, Pinochet throwing leftists out of the helicopter and this kind of mm -hmm. stuff. So it's like, again, um, it is interesting where you talk about the death drive or whatever, yeah. but. I think you might really see something like that where it's, you know, people's frustration or alienation or whatever else it might be. It becomes popular with the idea that there are a set of enemies and we have to kill them. And uh, when the left is a threat to take power democratically, I think that's the kind of uh, viewpoint that you will see have actual institutional money and power put behind it. Mm -hmm. Uh, where, you know, you have to say, like, these people are such a threat to our nation, our way of life, uh, everything, our family, that these people have to be killed. And so you're already seeing people prepare for that uh, with there are 
enthusiastic people in our alienated world who it's like, yeah, they want to do murder because right. it's exciting, it's cool, and you know they think that if you're a leftist, that's what you deserve. You're such a threat to private property or whatever else. I also uh, wanted to kind of uh, expand a little bit on something I mentioned earlier about how um, I don't think that uh, how America isn't maybe quite a fascist state just yet. You know, there are proto-fascist elements, certainly. Um, but I do genuinely think that there are already much stronger totalitarian elements within the United States. Um, as, you know, an example is would be, say, the kind of unquestioning nature of the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah. Um, that, you know, uh, every student does where it's like the literal, it, they are literally pledging allegiance, you know, to a flag, which isn't something that you see in many other countries, except for, you know, North Korea, there's the, um, you, you know, the almost worship of, of powerful people, especially in like high media levels, yeah. high levels mm -hmm. of media. Um, there's at every sports event, people sing the national anthem and then America, the beautiful, like halfway through as well. Um, the complete proliferation or like the commonplace, um, uh, just how, how commonplace like American weapons of war are in all of our media, yeah. like even for like a promotion for a football game, you'll see jet fighters flying around. Yep. Um, and it, but it's really it, bad for the president to have tanks <laughs> during yeah, a parade. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's where we draw the line. <laughs> yeah. And like outside of something no like ground Twitter weapons, or, come on. <laughs> And uh, I guess as the last thing, like if, if you try to talk about this stuff outside of Twitter or podcasts, you know, if you try to bring up anti-American things with, mm -hmm. for lack of a better word, normies, like people will be kind of shocked if, if you, you know, mention, say, Columbus's genocide or, uh -huh. um, you know, uh, say the founding fathers were slave owners and oligarchs, you know, things like what? that. It, it's <laughs> And so... All of this stuff goes on question, and I think Hannah Arendt's point of like fascism or totalitarianism, rather, mm -hmm. being a, a program of submitting, mm -hmm. you know, entirely, you know, soul, body and soul to the um, nation. I think that has, in many ways, been realized in the United States. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. When did you all start stop saying the pledge? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't stop till I left. Is because it was just, you know, second nature. Every day for me, man. Every day. <laughs> Every morning. I wake up and I look at that mirror naked and hard. We're and like, I pledge that allegiance. Actually, we're we like, do it at every uh, before every grub steak. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. We're, we're like the Steven Crowder show. We have to make all of our interns and all of our <laughs> handlers do the pledge before we start recording. Uh, I was going to say, That was like though, one of the first communist things that I did was around the start of the Iraq war, I stopped saying the pledge is like, I'm not fucking pledging allegiance to this country. That's invading Iraq. Fuck that. <laughs> I was going to say like one of the best things I've read on fascism is Orwell's review of Mein Kampf, which he wrote right at the start of world war two. It's only a couple pages long. I really recommend people check it out. But I, I agree with his points where he talks about, you know, Hitler could, uh, uh, he could describe himself fighting a mouse and make it sound like he was defeating a lion, yeah. you know? Yeah. And uh, he talks about... <laughs> 
how the socialist and even to a lesser extent the capitalist parties in England, they essentially just offer people, you know, uh, luxury. They say, uh, you know, hey, you'll have a great life. Hey, you'll have this. Hey, you'll have this material good. You'll have that or that. Mm -hmm. Whereas Hitler offers people, you know, danger and adventure and struggle. And, um, and, you know, he says that has a sway on people, at least for a time. Uh And so it is, it is something where I do think, um, and I don't know how common this viewpoint is, but I do think the left needs to, of course, the material and bettering people's lives element is important, mm-hmm. but there needs to be an offer of community. There needs to be an alternative because fascism does offer community. I mean, uh, it is a community of violent repression to everyone outside of the yeah, community, sure. but the left has to say, like, our community is better um, yes. and you know, and you also have to kind of, to a degree, meet people where they are, where it's like, you know, Andy, you're talking about uh, the the flag and the pledge and all that shit. And it's like most people have kind of, uh, I guess, contradictory views of politics, where it's like um, they, they might like Bernie Sanders, but also love the U.S. military, you know? So it, it is something where I just imagine in order to, like, um, I guess, meet people, mm-hmm. I do think a, a U.S. left does have to, in some ways, appropriate the U.S. flag and say, hey, this is the flag, you know, of the Union soldiers or this yeah. is the flag of uh, right. that defeated the Nazis or whatever else. Sure, we're building the community necessary to group one another together because without that, it makes it too, uh, well, like you're saying with the word, like sticks that can break easily alone because together you are stronger. Right. And, you know, it is just something where I think the majority of people who live in this country have, um, let's say, some sense of liking their community, not necessarily their government or but they have, you know, a lot of them some sort of pride of being an American, whatever that means, you know. So I, I do think I do think there is like something to be gained of appealing to to the American to let's say the American tradition where, you know, even going back to Abraham Lincoln, you had an articulation of the labor capital split and, uh, you know, labor is more valuable than capital because capital comes from labor Mm -hmm. and, you know, all this kind of stuff where, um, again, I'm not a political strategist, but I just imagine and I worry that um, if we go down the road of just appealing to people's, you know, material self-interest and nothing else, then we will lose to Tucker Carlson. So yeah, you heard it from Sean McCarthy first. Uh, the key to leftism succeeding in the United States is a uh, kind of nationalist socialism. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely I, I has to be like, militant. Don't get that wrong. <laughs> We've come back full circle from the beginning. I feel like a third position. Yeah. Some sort of combination. What if we what if we took national fascism uh-huh. but also Bolshevism? Okay, all right. And then you get national Bolshevism. Oh. You know, I, I, in a more serious vein, though, um, I've definitely been talking to a handful of different people about that need for community, and I've been thinking about it for a long time. Um, about like how do how do we deal with that? You know, I talked to some wobblies I know um, around here about. I was like, you know, we we do this like um, shop organizing stuff when we can. And it's really great when we can do that. Right. That's like traditional union shit. But I was like, you know, we need more than that. We need like um, we need stuff that takes 
that goes back to people's homes, right? We need stuff that people can carry around with them emotionally. That's not, again, not just material interests, even though that's, that's good. And that's really important. Uh, right. Of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I was like, I was like, we gotta, I was like, what if we started doing, um, and also it, it helps to combat that kind of totalitarian sort of capitalist mindset, you know, uh, and the, and the alienation as well. If you are not just organizing around work and money and, and, and immiseration per se, but you're combating things like those alienation, um, alienating dynamics. Um, and you're say even restoring, uh, things, uh, I don't want to say rebirth or anything, but you know, you're restoring things that should be natural to us, like community and the various elements of community. And I was like, you know, one of the most fundamental things is, is sharing food with somebody, which is why dates happen that way, which is why meetings uh, happen that way often with, you know, between like heads, right, corporations right. and shit, you know, bonding over food, bonding over shared activity. I was like, we have to start doing things like game nights and potlucks and, and, you know, things that everybody basically is attracted to. And we can't have it be uh, like a devolution into like in-person shit posting per se. Right. We have to have it be like, like stop hiding behind your organizing politics in these cases. Don't let that be your entire personality, as I think a lot of people have said in you know various um, tweets. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, but like be there as yourself and just play fucking Settlers of Catan and be like, isn't this fucked up that we're all trying to fuck each other over? But also, hey, what a fun game, you know? And, and, Whatever, right. you know, and, and like be like, hey, I brought sandwiches. I hope nobody has a peanut allergy. You know, just like be cool. Let me play seven instead. Yeah. 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 No, this is this is why I advocate socialism with Magic the Gathering characteristics. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Perfect. Because, you know, video games atomized play over the right, internet, right. but magic, you got to get there, you mm-hmm, bring your decks, mm-hmm. you sit down with somebody, you know, that's a bonding yeah. human experience that is so you, absent in our society. You have to pay $5,000 to be able to <laughs> actually play the game. Um, those are called dues. No, but this is, yeah. I think that the thing we're overlooking the most, though, is the thing that really brings communities together are Patreon subscriptions. Yes. I think that, <laughs> you know, Patreon.com, Grubstakers, join us at 500. We got merch, Look, a physical item you can take home. Yeah. I mean, this is what you want. If, if you can't do anything else, you can subscribe to our Patreon, <laughs> and then we're going to take care of this shit. Yeah, everything else And then we'll just talk about us. With do you friends. offer equity? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, uh, this is called a merger. <laughs> no. <laughs> we we practice we practice socialism in one podcast, so we are the equity holders. That's right. And What's your every- PE ratio? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a great great spot to wrap up. Um, uh, anybody, you have any plugs you want to throw out there that we haven't covered already? Check out Grubstakers. It's a good one. podcast about yeah uh, Thank yeah. You. We're first throwing off. our lives away in it. <laughs> 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 no, I don't know about you, but I love working 40 hours and then spend I mean, all of my free time recording a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, no, but uh, it it has been a lot of fun, honestly, and uh, we've got some great feedback. So you know, uh, the Grubstakers, it's we profile usually a new billionaire or family of billionaires every week. Uh, one episode on SoundCloud, one episode on Patreon every week. So soundcloud.com slash grubstakers patreon.com slash grubstakers and uh yeah we got some uh some fun ones planned for the future um but but thanks if for you don't know where to start us. check out their epstein episodes and uh <laughs> i think the one on lee kashing was really good too oh thank you yeah no that was interesting Every now and then we uh, drop the sound effects and bad impressions to just do two <laughs> hours of information. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, of course, we are uh, Neighbor Science. Um, Ryan, you want to do the outro? Yeah, NeighborSciencePodcast.com, uh, Twitter at NeighborSciPod. Uh, we have a Patreon as well. Um, we're, we don't have bonus episodes, but we're doing early release episodes. Yeah. So we, we just uh, released one uh about the publishing industry with mel from coffee with comrades yep. and um if you're not a patron that will be out in late september um if you are a patron uh you can listen to that now uh yeah i don't really want to plug anything else i don't know yeah do. <laughs> i already, already threw a few plugs out there um but just as a reminder um i recommended the eat the rich podcast especially their latest one about the bush dynasty and i plugged for the war nerd uh, especially the, the two, well, actually it was three episodes. The one that they did about fascist Italy to help me kind of frame it. And then um, the two episodes they did on uh, the years of lead era in Italy, which was also very interesting. I definitely recommend listening to those. Also check out Chapo Trap House. <laughs> <laughs> oh, watch 1983 on Netflix. Cause I want that to get renewed. And, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it's an obscure Polish uh, alternate history drama, but it's good. It's real good. But it's alternate history because I was wondering. I was like, I started the first episode and I was like, I don't know what the fuck is going on. <laughs> I never heard about <laughs> yeah, this. Yeah, the shit. Soviet Union never collapsed uh, and there was like a terrorist attack in Poland, but it's good. Uh, okay, interesting. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, All right, well thanks guys for coming on. Up. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having us. Learned a lot about uh, commonalities of fascism. So uh, if this podcast uh, becomes handy later in life, it will already be too late. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well. All right. Thanks all. Thanks. All right. Thanks for Take having care. us. We love you. We love, love you, you too. too. <laughs> Solidarity and all that. Solidarity.